Welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the wild tale of Broadway Freddie Denane, a well-known East Coast Nitro funny car racer in the 1970s who led a double life. At one point, he was a racer, but his real occupation was a mafia killer with one of the most vicious gangs in the history of the American underworld. This is the story, the wild story, and the true story of Broadway Freddie Denane. The 41st is one of the most violent precincts in the city. Last year, nearly 11,000 serious crimes were reported here, one for every 15 residents. 4,000 people were assaulted, robbed, raped, or murdered. A few minutes past seven on the evening of Saturday, February 3rd, this young man came into the station house with a stab wound in the shoulder. He just walked up to you and stabbed you after you asked him for a dime. Yeah, after he asked me for the There's a male Hispanic. Huh? He was Hispanic? Hispanic. Yeah. About how old was he? I don't know. Approximately. Yeah. And his 18, teen? 19, man. Uh, how tall was he? I don't know his height. I don't know much about that. Okay, Richard. Have a seat. We have an ambulance on the way. They'll take you down in the hospital and get you patched up. Detectives will notify you, and you can go look through the, uh, look at the pictures, and if you can recognize them, we'll go out and make the arrest. The audio you just heard came from 1973, and it was taken in the Bronx at a police station, the 41st Precinct, known as Fort Apache. It was one of the worst parts of a very bad city in 1973, in a city that would continue to get worse through the 1970s. It is impossible in 2020 to to tell you in words without you seeing the visuals of what New York City was through the early and mid-1970s. It was... A disaster area it resembles nothing that you see today in various areas of the city were more akin to a war zone than they were the metropolitan center of the united states that new york city really has reestablished itself as over the years it got so bad through the 70s for a multiple multitude of reasons and among them was fiscal mismanagement of the city there was giant budget deficits there was big problems in maintaining morale in the police force and in the fire department it was a very tough scene, especially if you were a first responder. The Mafia was also very much a part of this, and the Mafia will be a very big part of the story that I tell you today about a man named Freddie Denome, who went by Freddie Denome in the world of drag racing. We're going to get into all that, who this man is, who this man was, the horrible things that this man did and was involved in. But I really have to set the scene for you in 1970s New York before we can move ahead with this story, because... It just doesn't make any sense unless you understand the context of what was happening. Consider this. You're a traveler. You arrive in New York City in 1975. You get off an airplane, you take the subway, and you step out, and there's a bunch of people handing out pamphlets. And you're handed a pamphlet. And that pamphlet says, Welcome to Fear City, a survival guide for visitors of the city of New York. And the words in the pamphlet read as this. The incidence of crime and violence in New York City is shockingly high and is getting worse every day. During the four-month period ending in April 30, 1975, robberies were up 21%, aggravated assaults were up 15%, larceny was up 22%, and burglary was up 19%. Now to quote-unquote solve his budget problems, Mayor Beam is going to discharge substantial numbers of firefighters and law enforcement officers of all kinds. By the time you read this, the number of public safety personnel available to protect residents and visitors may already have been further reduced. 
Under those circumstances, the best advice we can give you is this. Until things change, stay away from New York City if you possibly can. Nevertheless, some New Yorkers do manage to survive and even to keep their property intact. The following guidelines have been prepared by a council of firefighters and law enforcement to help you enjoy your visit to the city of New York. And at the end of this paragraph is an animated skull. People at the time didn't know this, but these pamphlets were being handed out by police officers in plain clothes, and they were doing it because the aforementioned Mayor Beam had threatened to lay off 10,000 police officers and firemen. And they were having a huge contract dispute in the way that the police were going about their side of upholding their side of the argument was handing out these pamphlets, of which one million were printed. You want to know what those steps that they recommended were? Step one, stay off the streets after 6 p.m. Even in midtown Manhattan, muggings and occasional murders are on the increase during the early evening hours. Do not be misled by the late sunsets during the summer season. If you walk into midtown at about 7.30, you'll observe that the streets are nearly deserted. Recommendation two, do not walk. If you must leave your hotel after 6 p.m., try not to go out alone. Summon a radio taxi by telephone or ask the hotel doorman to call a taxi while you remain inside the lobby. Follow the same procedure when you leave the restaurant, theater, or other location for your evening activity. Step three, avoid public transportation. Step four, remain in Manhattan. This one's a good one. Police and fire protection in other areas of the city is grossly inadequate and will become more inadequate. In the South Bronx, which is known to police officers as Fort Apache, arson has become uncontrollable. If you remain in midtown areas and restrict your travel to daylight hours, emergency service personnel are best able to provide adequate supervision and protection. Number five, protect your property. Number six, safeguard your handbag. Imagine reading this if you're a woman that just landed in New York. If you carry a handbag or similar personal luggage, try to hold it firmly with both hands whenever you're in public. Never let it out of your hands. Above all, never let it out of your sight. Places that seem most secure, such as the restaurants or cocktail lounges that you frequent, are often the most dangerous. Even a moment's inattention can result in a serious loss. Number seven, conceal property and automobiles. Number eight, do not leave valuables in your hotel room and do not deposit them in the hotel vault. And number nine, be aware of fire hazards. Again, this is terrifying. The fire department is severely undermanned at present and further reductions are in prospect. Accordingly, you may have to evacuate quarters without assistance if a fire should occur from either natural or malicious causes. Try to avoid buildings that are not completely fireproof and familiarize yourself with the exits and escape routes wherever you are. In hotels, try to obtain a room that is close to the fire stairs. This is how bad it was in New York City. The buildings, many of which, especially in that Bronx neighborhood, were falling down. Crime was rampant of all types. The man we're going to talk about is one of the people responsible for committing some of those crimes. One of the most incredible things to think about about New York in the 70s and one of the central pillars of our story here today about Broadway Freddie DeName is car theft and car abandonment. In 1978, there were so many abandoned cars, cars stolen, cars left on the side of the road, stripped, that New York City had started to hire third-party vendors to tow this stuff away into wrecking yards. In 1978, there were 79,000 abandoned car collections on the streets of New York City. That is just the collections. That's the stuff that they, they, they recorded picking up and dragging back to a wrecking yard. Now, 
probably a little inflated because you have to think that these vendors were paid by the vehicle. They were paid by the job they did. So it certainly uh, helped everybody if they padded the books a little bit. Even if it is inflated by 20%, that is still tens of thousands of cars that they dragged off the streets of New York. But the biggest number is this. In 1982, and the story we're going to tell basically runs from 1968 to 1982 here. 1986 for our protagonist, Broadway Freddie Denae. But in 1982, at the height of the worst year of car theft in New York City history, 104,056, that's 104,056 cars were reported stolen in New York City. That means they were stolen, taken for a joyride, and returned. That means they were stolen and cut up for pieces and never returned, stolen and shipped off the country. A racket that we'll talk more about as we get into this program. But think of that. 104,000 reported theft instances of motor vehicles in 1982. And this is where we really have to start talking about the mafia in this story. And yes, we could have, I mean, there are great podcast series on the entire, you know, history of the mafia, but we need to just put it into context about kind of what the mafia was in uh, mid to late 70s, early 80s, New York City. It was the most powerful entity that existed. They were involved and wrapped into everything that was happening. They had a large number of law enforcement uh, on the dole. They had people in City Hall they were paying. They had their hooks into just about everything. The Gambino family and Lucchese family were two of the biggest. You know, they had the five kind of famous families in New York. You had a group called the Westies, which were the Irish Mafia, that uh, we're going to get into their role in this whole story as we continue on. The thing to understand about the Mafia in New York at this point is their main ways of making money, racketeering, loan sharking, and car theft. At this point, the Mafia had not gotten fully into selling drugs. Drugs were not really part of their business. You had old school leaders of the uh, the Mafia at this point that uh, understood that drugs brought a lot of unnecessary police attention to their organization. They knew that there was risks involved. They knew there was a lot of money there. But the old school rackets, the um, ability to shake down businesses, the ability to steal cars and sell them to chop shops or own the chop shops or ship the cars offshore, uh, loan sharking, these were the these were the ways primarily that they made their money. And so car theft is the central part of this story. And it's a strange story because car theft turns into murder. And not just a little bit, it turns into a lot of murder. And so that is where Broadway Freddy enters the story when we start talking about cars and car thieves and a guy named Roy DeMeo. DeMeo and Broadway Freddy became pals and they were kids. DeMeo was a heavyset kid. They were both from a neighborhood of, New, uh, of Brooklyn called Carnassi. And it was not a great place. It was actually called Pigtown because if you can believe it, they were actually hog farms still in Brooklyn into the 1960s. It doesn't, doesn't seem possible, but it's true. So Broadway Freddy as a young man is a friend of Roy DeMeo's. And now we have to introduce Roy DeMeo, one of the most infamous figures in American underworld history. So Roy DeMeo, uh, as a young kid, as I mentioned, kind of a heavy set bully type, if you will, was a, um, a kid who 
definitely had a rough edge to him from the time he was young, of course, until he was growing up. Broadway Freddy, on the other hand, was an interesting case. He was a fourth grade dropout. He was illiterate as he suffered from a very severe case of dyslexia that was never dealt with or he was never educated on how to read or write. So what's inter- interesting about Broadway Freddy is his real name was spelled Denome, D-I-N-O-M-E, on his race cars, it was always Dename, D-E-N-A-M-E, and the fact of the matter is he didn't know how to spell it properly either way. We just know his real name from uh, legal documents that he has been included in, of course, over his life. But back to DeMeo. DeMeo uh, begins his criminal rise as a kid. He is a young guy. He's in a, a butcher's apprentice. He was going to be a butcher. So he worked uh, in meat markets, he worked in slaughterhouses, and he worked learning the trade of butchery. A sad and very strange prelude to what the rest of his life would lead to. But as he's doing this, um, he sees other guys in his neighborhood getting ahead, making money, doing jobs for people, um, getting paid on the side. And he becomes fixated with this idea of being in the mob. He wants to be in the mob. And DeMeo successfully ingratiates himself with the right people, successfully moves himself uh, and identifies himself as a guy who's willing to do what it takes to make his way in. And his life goal becomes to be a made man, to be uh, fully made in the mob, of course, is uh, or was at one point, maybe still is, a, a big honor and inclusion. Um, it... it, it Again, we could do a whole podcast and stuff like that, but I really just want to try to set up the background here. So Freddie, well, he is a fourth grade dropout. Well, he cannot read or write. He is a brilliant mechanic and a guy who um, can work on cars. He's intrinsically smart like that, loves hot rods, loves racing, loves making horsepower, and he is a very, very good car thief. Uh, at a very young age, becomes a very solid car thief. So DeMeo, recognizing Freddy's talents and also his shortcomings, decides that he is going to get a car thief thar theft ring going. And what Roy DeMeo creates is the most successful car theft ring, I'm not going to say in the history of the United States, but it's darn close. By the time this thing is fully up and running, DeMeo has 20 thieves at a time going out a night stealing cars, both for uh, chop shops to cut the pieces off of, but also he's making a ton of his money by stealing cars to order. And what I mean by saying stealing cars to order, he had buyers in Kuwait and Iran before the Shah fell in 1979, was a huge market, and in South America that wanted luxury cars. So he would literally receive orders, steal me a black Cadillac with a red interior, this model. And he would send his 20 car thieves out scouring the city and it wouldn't they wouldn't just be looking for one car these guys would be some of these guys are stealing eight to ten cars a week uh per a piece and again we go back to that number in 1982 of the 104,000 cars stolen in new york city and i'm certainly not implying that DeMeo stole them all but what i'm telling you is DeMeo was not the only one operating in this business space and as he was doing it uh his ring itself was probably moving a couple hundred cars a week and it was the scope of this was really pretty amazing. Now, what Denaim's main job became after he was a uh, a car thief, which he always still was, but what his real job was was to what they called retag the cars. He was the guy that refit new VIN numbers to cars that where they were able to sneak out of the country. Um, he was very good at it. They had a system worked out. And the way they were able to do that is as Denaim made a bunch of money stealing cars, he bought himself a gas station and later opened up a body shop. 
So it was Freddy's Diagnostic Center was the name of his repair and body shop, and he also had a gas station. These things all happened right about the early 70s, and I want to pause the story of Freddy's life right now so we can go into his drag racing life because this is important. So what we've established right now is his friend Roy DeMeo has brought him into this car theft ring. It is very, very uh, successful in its own nefarious way. Uh, Denaim is making some money now. This is all happening in the late 60s, moving into the early 70s. He buys his gas station, and this is a guy, as I mentioned, Freddy loves drag racing. What do you do if you love drag racing and you're a kid with some money? You go out to California. That's where the fun is. That's where the cars are. And for Freddie DeName, that's where his top fuel racing career began in 1968 at Bakersfield. So DeName travels from New York to California. Now, I don't know where he ran before Bakersfield, but at the Bakersfield March Meet in 1968, he was there with a dragster called Ironically enough, The Fugitive. And The Fugitive was a really nice Don Long front-engine car, top fueler, had a nitro-burning Hemi in it, and there is basically one photo of it from the front-on stance, and he's going through the finish line traps with uh, one of the timing blocks wedged in the nose. This was not uncommon for Freddy. One thing you should know is that Freddy was a far better murderer and a far better car thief than he ever was a drag racer. So with Freddie having now gone to Bakersfield in 68, raced this car at the March meet, uh, most notably just hitting the timing blocks. And the second most notable thing that he did was he brought his pet monkey with him to California. He had a pet monkey named Susie, and you'll hear about this monkey a little bit later on, but he would take this pet monkey and basically uh, leash it into the driver's seat of the car when he was warming up the top fueler. And as you'll hear, the monkey did not like it. There are stories told by multiple people of Freddie having fistfights with this monkey over the course of its life. He and Susie apparently had a fairly strange relationship. In 1969, Freddie reappears again in California, driving the motion performance Fugitive Top Fuel Dragster at Lions Drag Strip, a fairly uh, uneventful appearance. Again, he loses early on in this match, and that was really anybody had ever heard of him. He wasn't somebody a lot of people paid attention to because he was just a guy. Like, there was a 100 guys that showed up with dragsters, and he was just another one from the East Coast. And it was not that uncommon to have East Coast guys that would live out on the West Coast and run their cars and then kind of disappear back East, never to be heard from again. For Broadway Freddy, his West Coast kind of peak performance was that day at Lions Drag Strip when he got his butt kicked in the first round. And at the end of the, um, at the, end of the day, he left and never came back with the dragster anyway to the state of California. In 1970, Broadway Freddy switched to funny cars. He had a Camaro funny car, and he went drag racing with that. Famously, there is a picture of this Camaro funny car at Coney Island, New York, doing a burnout on the boardwalk. The best part about this Coney Island, New York photo is the fact that he got no permits for it. He got no permission for it. He simply showed up with a funny car, offloaded it, and started doing burnouts on the boardwalk at Coney Island. Again, giving you a bit of a window into how much of a uh, kind of a crazy person this was. Amazingly, Broadway Freddy has some connections to the modern world of NHRA drag racing. One of those connections involves a man named Don Schumacher. Some of you may know the story, many of you may not. But in 1971, Don Schumacher had a duster funny car. It was 
His car was beautiful, had his name and script down the side of it. And I'm going to have this story told in the words of Don Schumacher. This quotation coming from CompetitionPlus.com back in 2007, their War Stories series. Don Schumacher tells this. There may have been a hotbed of drag racing on the West Coast, but let me tell you, we had our own little shindig of activity happening on the East Coast, especially in New York. The location escapes me at this time, but we went back to the hotel and parked the transporter and car in the parking lot. We got up the next morning and it was gone. Stolen. The whole thing had disappeared. It was a tough loss, but not the end of the world. I had a complete operation back home, so we went there and got it. About three weeks later, I was out on the East Coast match racing with Jungle Jim Lieberman. One of his crew guys told me that he saw my rig over at Freddie Denaim's place. Now, Freddie Denaim was a car thief out of Brooklyn, and he ran a car back then, and he was connected with the syndicate. He was connected with a group that thought nothing of killing people. I went ahead and got a hold of the police and put them on it. Anyway, a couple weeks later, we were racing out on Long Island, and after notifying the police, Freddie showed up at the racetrack and visited me with a Thompson submachine gun. He was a very serious individual, so I said, no problem, keep whatever you have, I don't need to know any further. In a situation like that, you learn quickly to forget that you had a funny car at all. I sure did. This was maybe the smartest business decision Don Schumacher ever made in his life because, as we'll come to find out, Broadway Freddie DeName had absolutely no problem using a machine gun or any other means on anybody else in his life. So yes, Broadway Freddie upgraded his Camaro funny car with Don Schumacher's duster. And not only was the paint job so poorly done on this car, you can find photos of it, and he basically kept the same scheme, but instead of the car being blue and white, it was red and white, and he just slapped his name down the side, effectively in the same style of lettering that Don Schumacher had on his car. And you can swear, and people that saw that car swear that you could still see Don Schumacher's name under the paint. Pretty wild stuff. So the reason that race car thefts were so easy back in the day is, of course, everybody would take their stuff from hotel to hotel. I mean, all the big names had stuff stolen. Uh, Sox and Martin had a truck and car stolen. Bill Jenkins did. Of course, Don Schumacher did. Tommy Ivo did. You can go right down the line, and it was just a matter of jumping in the truck and driving off with the stuff. It isn't like today when you had to, you know, get a big rig and wrangle all the stuff around. Back then, you simply went to the Holiday Inn parking lot, and if you had the uh, if you had the guts and the ability, you could jump into a you could jump into a tow rig and get out of town pretty quickly. So Broadway Freddy runs that car with, uh, again, no success. Uh, let's get that out of the way right now. The guy never won anything. He was not a good racer, but he loved it. And we'll hear from a couple of his contemporaries in a few minutes as they give more details on that. But typically, you're going to find Broadway Freddy at Englishtown, at Atco, Lebanon Valley Dragway, New England Dragway, and some of the tracks in Maryland and Virginia. He never really left the eastern quadrant of the country during this time frame and he couldn't for various reasons he was obviously into some activity that we'll get to that uh, did not allow him to raise a lot of suspicion about himself he did not want to get himself across state lines and get in trouble between 1970 and 78 in his busy years he would run 12 to 15 races a year Um, he ran the summer nationals the nhra race a couple of times in the mid 70s he ran some grand american ahra events in the mid 70s as well Um, but really he would mostly match race and after the 71 duster he had a sports roof style 1972 73 mustang he had a monza bodied funny car and then he had a 1976 buick skyhawk which was his coolest car and it was called saturday night fever and that's the car you'll most likely see if you look up photos of broadway freddie the name under d-e capital n-a-m-e 
But the Saturday Night Fever car was great. It had a really cool uh, mural-style paint job on it. John Travolta painted on the hood. The whole works. Ran some of the UHRA races at New York National and a couple of the Garlitz PRO races as well. And those races were pretty much disastrous in terms of their execution. He never really won anything. He had a couple of runner-up finishes, but really um, the runner-up finishes came in Englishtown late in his so-called drag racing career when Harlan Thompson, who we're going to hear from in a couple of minutes, when Harlan Thompson was driving and tuning the car. So Broadway Freddy is a car thief that likes drag racing, that owns funny cars, one of which was stolen from Don Schumacher. He is not a good drag racer. In fact, he had a pretty fiery crash at one point in his career, and Roy DeMeo was there watching the race and dragged him out of the car. They both received some burns. It's tough to pin a year down on this, but it's somewhere in the early half of the 70s. So who was this guy at the racetrack? That's the big question, right? I've intimated the fact that he's been involved in some bad stuff, stealing cars primarily at this point in his life. Maybe some other stuff that we don't quite know about yet, but who was this guy and did anybody know anything more about him? To get the real answers to these questions, we have to talk to people who were around him during this time frame. And thankfully, I know three of the guys who spent some time around Broadway Freddy. The first guy we're going to hear from is Don Roberts. To give Don a bit of an introduction, uh, one of the premier drag racers out of the New England area for a multiple decade period from the 1960s through the 70s. A guy who ran Top Fuel Dragsters and Nitro Funny Cars. And then from 1976 to 1981, Don was in charge of marketing and public relations at New England Dragway. So uh, being that New England Dragway was one of the places Freddie would end up on occasion with his funny car, Don, you, uh, you saw this guy race as a as a management guy and as a racer i understand yes brian the the first time i became aware of freddie uh was when i worked with jimmy king and don marshall uh, and the king and marshall top field dragster and funny cars long ago and they said uh you know besides drag racing freddie had a regular nine to five job down in new york city <laughs> uh it wasn't necessarily above board you know every hour of the day so uh, but the, the Freddie, the name that I knew, uh, always treated me well. He spoke to me respectfully. Uh, I have no knowledge of what he ever allegedly did. I, I think one of the funniest things about Freddie the name is there was an, a current NHRA big show multi-car owner. Yes. <laughs> had a car stolen by Freddie and Freddie had the balls to actually race that car the next week with a different paint job on it and i always said my god is he stupid or is he that ballsy but according to the legend that is an honest to god true story and uh it, it will go down in the annals of drag racing as you gotta be kidding me but you know way back when uh crazy things happened funny things happened some sad things happened but Freddie to name stories will go on forever. There's just absolutely no end. Yeah, and, and what's interesting to me is, you know, the guy obviously was not that much of a racer. He, he clearly loved drag racing because he stuck involved in it for a while, but he was, you know, there's no real reports of his cars really doing anything other than when Harlan Thompson was kind of in charge of them later on in the, in the show. But, you know... D if you can remember, I mean, how did people respond to his stuff? And obviously his uh, his outside of drag racing activities were not well known at that point. But did he have any sort of a, a following or was he just kind of one of the guys? Freddie had a following in New York and down in New Jersey and in the middle Atlantic states. 
Uh, Freddie raced for cheap money just to get out there and do it. Sure. And, and I, I truly believe Freddie wanted to be a serious drag racer, but just didn't have uh, the clout to get it done. Yeah. And a lot of people were kind of always afraid to go up near Freddie based on, you know, what his daily job was. So uh, they just sort of stayed away. But one of the, the, the teams that helped out Freddie an awful lot were my own guys, Jimmy King and Don Marshall. They, okay. they helped Freddie. They helped Freddie tremendously in the old days. And one morning at New England Dragway on a rainout, about ten thirty in the morning, uh, there was a funny car race, and I was there with the King and Marshall top fuel car. And I, I had never spoken to Freddie. I had seen him in the stage lanes and said hi. And Freddie walks up to me and says, "I want to talk to you." And I said, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> have I done?" I done something wrong to incur the wrath of Broadway Freddie. But he looked at me and he goes, you're a good kid. You drive these cars. You drove a lot of cars and you, and you do a good job. He goes, and past that, you're a really good guy. And he takes a business card out of his pocket and it's got his name. It says Freddie to name and a New York phone number. And he hands me the card. And he says, if you ever need anything, you call me. <laughs> So <laughs> I, I never needed Freddie for anything, but I appreciated the fact that he took a moment, you know, to, to speak to me in, in a in a kind and gentle way. And he appreciated what I did with the cars. And I always get a kick out of that. I've held on to most everything in my drag racing life, but somewhere, <laughs> somehow I managed to lose that. And I kicked myself. I wish I had it. Honest to God, I truly do. As far as New England goes, and I, and I think any track on the East Coast here, uh, the funny cars were the big draw always. There were Wednesday night programs at New England Dragway. There were Wednesday night, Thursday night shows at English Town at Lebanon Valley. Uh, there were Saturday night shows at Maple Grove. And if you were fortunate enough to have something going on Sunday, uh, you packed it all up and headed to the next venue. So the funny cars are what paid the bills. Uh, if you sprinkled in some top fuel dragsters, wheel standers uh jets and at least in boston that that i was concerned with and and my my advertising market you know we advertised on three or four radio stations in boston and we could spend anywhere from 10 to 15 to twenty thousand dollars on a wednesday night program to wow. advertise yeah. to, to let the people know but you got that money back. People flocked in groves uh, to New England Dragway on a Wednesday night or a Friday night or a Saturday or a Sunday because there were so many things going on at New England Dragway that were interesting. Um, one last question, and, and you know this one's not off the wall, but it's a little different where you know I think when we look at you know drag racing history and we look at how the sport evolved over time, it really did change with the popular culture. And we look at what drag racing was in the 50s and the 60s and then through the 70s. And by the time we get to, we get to Freddie's era, this mid-late 70s era, you know, the country's kind of in this weird position where, you know, we're just past the Vietnam War, which you are a veteran of. Uh, we are just past, uh, you know, there's economic trouble, there's fuel crunches, there's this, that. And, of course, there is this this scariness of the mafia that is all around the country. It, to me, looking back on it and having not lived it and, and looking at stuff, it does feel that drag racing had that same kind of grit going on to it that the country did. It seems like it was kind of like it took on a bit of an outlaw kind of flavor in that, in that part of its, its history. Can you speak to that at all? 
Well, take a look at, at Jungle Jim Lieberman. Uh, there wasn't anybody uh, that was as hardcore and as gritty and uh, a, a guy that tried so hard to do good and, and, and did good on the racetrack. He was a legend literally in his own time. And, uh, you know, it was the guys like Lieberman. It was the guys like Don Schumacher. Uh, all of the great funny car guys uh, from the old days, uh, top fuel guys, Don Garlitz. Uh, those are the guys that didn't make a great deal of money, had a tremendous amount of passion, had a tremendous amount of knowledge to get it done. And it was truly an amazing time. Uh, I, I take nothing away from what drag racing is in 2020, sure. but it was a different time then than it is now. It was harder to get things done now. Uh, I'm sorry, hard to get things done then than it is now. Uh, you had to improvise. You had to use a lot of common sense. You had to, you had to wing it on a, a, a great deal of days. <laughs> yes. Just, you know, a Saturday night you leave Maple Grove and you go to Epping and you don't know if you've got eight pistons left in it, but <laughs> right. uh, you drive all night to get there and you cross your fingers and hope it don't smoke too bad when you start it up to warm it up. So uh, those are the things that made drag racing the great thing that it is today. Uh, all of the, the people that, that forged all of that going down the road. Uh, it was just truly amazing. And I'm glad I had a chance to be part of that when it was such a great time. It's a great time now. I think it was a better time then. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and, and shed some light on this uh, most interesting personality that I'm centering this episode of the podcast around. And uh, we're going to continue this conversation with a friend of yours and a guy who, uh, again, a contemporary and a racer with uh, the Broadway the Broadway Freddy that we're talking about is Al Segrini. So he will be our next guest. Don Roberts, thanks so much for taking some time, and I appreciate you uh, sharing your knowledge with us. So as we continue on our discussion here about Broadway, Freddie DeName, wanted to bring in another guy who uh, was involved with Broadway in the sense of they were both drag racing at the same time, both funny car racers at the same time. And I'd like to welcome Al Segrini. I would say probably Massachusetts' premier drag racing export. Al Segrini, uh, multiple-time national event winner, won the Winter Nationals a couple of times, beat Jungle Jim at Englishtown back in 1974. And uh, Al you, you you weren't I'm not gonna say you were best friends with the guy, but you certainly interacted with him out on the road, right? You saw Broadway Freddie at the drag strip. Oh yeah, I I raced with Freddie quite a few times. It was I met Freddie back in 1972, which was my first time driving a double A funny car for Costi Ivanov, the Boston Shaker, and that's it. I was just a rookie coming up, and I'd heard about Freddie, so we we kind of were in the two or three races together. And I have a couple of quick stories with Freddie. He was always a character. You remember, Freddie was a character. He loved drag racing, you know, and we just took him as Freddie. So, sure. you know, I, I, I had I had heard told a lot of I've heard a lot of stories about Freddie before I had met him. He was a very colorful, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was before I met him. I was told he had a monkey, and in the West Coast, he would put the monkey in the seat. And fire up the dragster, and the monkey go crazy, <laughs> and, and so wouldn't the crowd. The monkey wanted to get out. He had him chained in there with a leash, and the monkey wanted out of it. He wanted no part of it. And Freddie said, "Stay in there." So I, I had heard. I didn't see it firsthand, but I, I heard the story. And then after meeting him, I could, I believed the story. You know? 
then, you know, I, I watched him at that quick one, Brian, was really funny. I, you know, I watched him at New England Dragway with his funny car. So he goes, I'm watching behind him make a run, and he leaves the starting line. He goes out about 500 feet. You see the chutes come out. The car stops on the track. He gets out through the roof hatch. He raises his hands, a la like uh, Raymond Beetle, like yeah. The crowd goes nuts. So after in the pits, we said, hey, what was that all about? He said, what do you mean? I made the run. I said, Freddie, you didn't go 500 feet. He Are you serious? Line. <laughs> that, was, that was a big laugh. We thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> I should ever see him do it. But it was like back to the, in the days, you don't want to be on the wrong side of Fred. So we all laughed with him, not at him. Yeah, you know, just to speak to that one story, like he obviously loved the sport, but he he clearly wasn't that much of a racer. You know what I mean? Like just from reading everything I have and just, you know, and, and even stories like this, like the guy loved kind of, um, I think he loved the atmosphere perhaps more than he had talent to back it up. Right. He, he, he wasn't, I mean, he tried the best he could and, you know, and like you say, he more or less, he loved being around the racers and being associated with them and being part of it. And back in the days with the camaraderie was unbelievable with the teams. We all got along. We had fun. Yeah. It was a big family. Like they still talk about family today, but it was more of a family because we coincided with each other's team and stuff. You could walk in and speak to everybody. It was no problem, but I got a good one for you. <clears throat> I'm racing out at, uh, New, uh, Long Island Dragway. Okay. Out in Long Island. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm with the black, I'm driving the black magic car at the time. So we go in there into the track and I run and I broke something in the car. I don't know what happened, but I couldn't come back the next round. So, I, you know, I'm bummed out about it. I wanted to race naturally. And all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, somebody's up on my trailer with a trumpet and they're blowing taps <laughs> like I'm dead, right? Yeah, but what is going on? Well, it's Freddie. Freddie sent one of his guys up there to blow taps. It's Segrini's dead, so we might as well blow taps. That's a true story. But that's the kind of a guy he was. So he was a character. He got the biggest kick out of that. You know, it was so funny. Yeah, and it, you know, having been at the racetrack with him so many times, I mean, did the guy kind of have a little bit of a fan base in that New York, New Jersey kind of English town area? Right, right. He was, you know, he was. He came from Brooklyn, New York, really. But then he had moved out to Long Island. <clears throat> this is a good one. That when you race at Long Island, Freddie invited you back to his house to have sauce and meatballs. His, okay. his wife cooked. Right. Well, after the race, the both sides of the street where he lived were chaparral trailers and rigs. Wow. Because you you went to his house, and now the funny thing was he took it as an insult. If you didn't show up, okay. so everybody would show up because you don't want to get on the wrong side <laughs> of Freddie. So everybody would show up, both sides of the street, probably like you figure eight, ten chaparrales and cars on the street to have pasta with Freddie, and that was a, a local thing he did. You know, it was really good. You I, know, heard, I, I heard his house, and just from stuff I read, I heard his house is pretty interesting. Like I heard the backyard was all like filled with dirt bikes and cars and everything oh, else. Oh. A, a quick backyard. If you get to speak to Harlan Thompson, he'll tell you about. He took Freddie out. Freddie took him out in the back garage where his little garage was back there. He said, "I want to show you something, kid." He, he goes, takes Harlan out there. He opens up this freezer and it's full of cash. He said, this is what you call cold cash. Whoa, that's a true story. <laughs> it was full. He said, "You want to see what cold cash looks like?" He lit the freezer up. It was full. 
Holy oh, smoke. Things like that, stories like that. It was unbelievable. You know, if you want to cuss them, these guys down below, they'll fall for that. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 to me, it's an interesting thing, um, you know, with Freddie and the fact that, you know, we know this guy kind of lived this double life. And it's like he was able to make such a separation between whatever was happening away from the racetrack to whatever was going on with it. Because it would seem like if this guy had actually been a good racer, he would have had the personality type to be a really successful guy in this era because obviously he took no guff from anybody. He would not have, you know, he would not have been in a lot of arguments about getting paid, but he just didn't seem to be able to ever get it together all the way. I mean, right or wrong, that Saturday night fever car he had was probably the nicest thing that he had. And even that car wasn't that successful. Harlan did a good job with it, of course, but it just didn't really ever have the the right stuff. No, no, it, it was good, but, like you say, you know, his his other life and stuff. You know, and if you get a chance to read that book, The Murder Machine, it shows Freddie's in in quite a bit of it. And I'm funny because I was with Harlan over the weekend down at Gainesville. We went down to that, and we were talking about Freddie. I said, Freddie, I said to Harlan, Harlan, remember I used to tease him all the time. He's yeah, I know that. He said. He used to want to kill you. And he said, he said, he said to me, I used to tell him, oh, Al's really a good guy. He's just kidding with you and joking. And he says, yeah, he really murdered me. I went, oh, gee. I got goosebumps when I heard that. Because I used to tease him more than anybody. You're no driver. You couldn't drive. You, you don't know what you're doing. You know, and he's trying like hell, but he's a funny guy. And like I, say, like I said, I heard a lot of stories about Freddie, some of missing race cars. But it's not for me to tell. As far as I know, they were all stories. Let's leave it that way. Only the shadow knows exactly if it were true, right? Yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> but no, it's I can, a- you know, like I said, I can always say he was always a good friend to me. And rest in peace. And we'll just go on from there. But he was a colorful guy. He was good for the sport. You know, it, it was uh, the sport. The sport that back then we raced. We were like a band of gypsies. You were, it was like a caravan. Wow. That's a short story. That's how it was back in the day. We were yeah. all all stuck up for each other, you know, and we try to help each other because this is how we made a living. And it was it was the glory days, you know, I say. But uh, no, I, was great, about- I, I appreciate you taking the time and, 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 sh- and shedding some insight because, you know, it's to me, it's so interesting. There's all this stuff you can read about the guy, but being able to actually hear some of these stories out of the, mm-hmm. out of the mouths of people that were with him, I think, is, is so much better. So that's uh, yeah, that's great, man. All right, so I'm joined by Harlan Thompson, and for those of you unfamiliar, Harlan Thompson, a very highly decorated funny car driver, both in the USA and outside of the USA, had a great career in the United States and drove very successfully in Europe for many years, and he was also a guy that drove a race car for Broadway Freddie to name. So Harlan Thompson, welcome, and I thank you for taking some time with us today. Well, thank you. So, Arlen, I guess the first question I want to ask you is, how did you how did you come into contact with Broadway, and I guess how did you end up driving his race car? Oh, he, we just kind of became friends at the races. You know, you hang out when different drivers come, and Freddie uh, just loved drag racing. He just thought it was cool. The funny cars, just unbelievable, he thought. He, he bought one and didn't even know what the heck to do with it, how to start it or <laughs> anything about it. He just wanted to be one of the guys. He'd come out to the races and stuff and just, became friends with him and seemed like every Tuesday night during the summer, there'd be races out in Long Island, New York. Okay. And that, that was probably four or five miles from me. He had a home out there. So he'd come to the races and whether he ran his car or didn't, it didn't matter, but he'd have us all over to his house afterwards for dinner before he went back home and just, you know, kind of became friends with him over the years. And then 
I try to help him out a little bit sometimes, but he's there's quite a ways off. So, I, you know, one weekend I went out and helped him out and put his car together and show him how it works and how to drive it and stuff. And, and, uh, he, he still didn't do too good, <laughs> you know, crossing the center line, <laughs> bouncing guardrail stuff, but he loved it. And he was a nice guy. You know, he lived like two lives. The life he lived around us in the racetrack, he was just the nicest person you'd want to know. Funny, making you laugh all the time, everything like that. And his other life was, uh, you know, he grew up a hard life in uh, yeah. in Brooklyn, uh, no education, you know, just tough street kid. And uh, probably did a lot of illegal things to get to where he was at, but, you know. You know, it's it's interesting to me because um, one of the things that I think is, is so no, it's not funny. It's just an ironic part of his life is that he loved drag racing so much, but he really was not a racer in the sense that a Harlan Thompson is a racer, in the sense that an Al Segrini is a racer. But he did love it. So I guess I guess my question to you is, did he did he get a lot very frustrated at his lack of success, or did he really just love being at the racetrack so much the lack of success didn't bug him that much? No, I don't think it bothered him. Um in his mind, he thought he was successful. Even if he came to the racetrack and warmed his carpet, and everything went down the quarter mile. You know, it, it got him out of the stands and got him in with the guys. And he got, you know, he had a car, the funny car driver. He could talk to everybody and hang out with everybody. He really loved it. And he didn't have a lot of time for it, you know, yeah. so that hurts too because he was, had another job, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. uh, and so I guess, uh, what was the initial conversation for you to take over the wheel of his car? I mean, obviously you had a friendship. You had helped him. You had helped him kind of get his head straightened out as far as the race car went. Uh, there was one of the races we went to. He was there and that. He, he just asked for some help. And I didn't want to say anything to hurt his feelings, but <laughs> yeah, we didn't. Uh, he couldn't drive the car, so we didn't didn't really know how to help him. I didn't want to make it so it ran fast or it might hurt him. So I said, well, let me make a run or two in it. So I did that. It ran decent we made some changes to it it ran fairly decent and i said okay it's ready to go and then you know down the road a week or two later he said can you drive my car for me and i said well i'm going to be in like i think up in epping new hampshire with another car but bring it up and i'll drive them both okay that'd be great so we did that wow just did it a couple times for him like that usually driving both cars because i had a full-time ride in the one car yes and uh so i drive for him now and then and then he didn't really want to get back in it. I, I knew that. He was a type like if they had a big show in Coney Island, New York, he'd take the car there and make a burnout in the parking lot or something. And he was the king then, you know, smoke and noise <laughs> and the smell of nitro and everybody was cheering him and stuff. That was that what he loved doing. Yeah. And it's uh, in the car you drove was the Saturday Night Fever car. Mm -hmm. Which car did you drive for him? Yeah, Saturday Night Fever. Which my understanding was that car, in terms of the parts and pieces, was actually pretty good. I mean, he didn't know a how to set it car. up. Pretty good car. He yeah. he actually had the money to race. In fact, one time I, I was out in his house at Long Island. And he, he says, uh, "You know why they call it cold hard cash, Harlan?" I said, "No, why?" He took me out to his deep freeze and opened it up, and we completely full of hundred dollar bills. <laughs> <laughs> so he, at the, especially back then, it was fairly reasonable to run cars. He could afford to race full time or something. If, he wasn't really into that full time racing. Yeah. He was more of a, a car show, parking lot guy, make, yeah. part, warming it up. You know, he would have loved nowadays the Capital Fest. You know, that would have been him. Oh, he would have been all over that, 100%. Yeah. And if you could, uh, you know, if you got any, you know, Al Segrini told us a funny story about how he was eliminated at one of the races on Long Island and, and Freddie had had one of his guys climb up on top of the trailer and, and play taps. You know, so this guy, he, he obviously oh, I remember he that. Always, yeah, he, he blew up the engine. Yeah. <laughs> 
You know, a lot of stories, but most of them are kind of dirty and foul language. But that was him. That would made yeah. the stories funny. If you don't, if you took off all the words, there'd be no good stories to it. And, and um, did, did I ever tell you the story about when he went to make a quarter mile run? He ran about a hundred feet from the starting line and put the parachutes off and shut it off. He mentioned it, but I want to hear it from your perspective, Kook. Al did mention that, I mean, but I'd love to hear it from your. Thing, yeah. I, I thought to myself, God, well, he must have broke something. What happened there? So I went down and, and I said something. What happened? He said, "Oh, it made a great run." He, he said, "I'm just flying." I said, Freddie, that's a starting line right there. <laughs> You're not even close to a quarter mile. He had that weird look on his face. He looked around a little bit. Oh, gee, I thought I was down to a quarter mile. You know? <laughs> oh, that's but, an you know, you thing. couldn't laugh at him because he was so, he, he, you know, just such a nice guy and so funny. Yeah. Well, it's cool. And, when- you know, later in his career, he, when the uh, the mafia back back east was so popular and the five families and stuff, he was what they call a made man. Sure. I mean, that's pretty high up in the mafia. You know, that's big time. Yeah. and So uh, and, and, so he had that double life, you know, where he was really, uh, you know, really a nice, friendly, easygoing guy and then really a hardcore gangster type guy. And it would seem to me, at least, you know, in, in talking to Al and Don, that, that the two never really ran into each other. I mean, it seemed like people knew no. he wasn't a guy to be trifled with, but it never seems like that angry side of him came out never at the came races. out at the yeah. races never no he liked it it was he was just there to have fun and laugh and joke and and uh <laughs> awful crude language but, <laughs> but and, the way he said it was just funny you know nobody took him serious and, and how do you personally look back on those days i mean it's you know it's for a guy like me to come buggy and dredge up some of these stories it's it's, it's fun for me and i think it's going to be fun for our audience i mean you look at your career which again you're in the british drag racing hall of fame you're as accomplished as anybody that's ever been a funny car racer and how do you kind of view that interesting period you had with freddie oh it was great i mean drag racing back then was a completely different world you know people could go out with a small amount of money a couple of guys could put their money together and have a team and and have fun and the match racing thing i hardly ever even went to your national meets sure because to give a uh two or three match races up to go to one national meet and lose in the first round or something when you worked off a percentage i got a third of what the car made so we wanted to run it off where we could run so we do the tuesday nights the wednesday nights the friday night the saturday the sundays you know go 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 yeah. and uh it was just fun. Everybody had a great time. Everybody helped one another out. If you broke something, the guy next door would give you the part you needed. We didn't have big inventories or big tractor trailers or anything. And, you know, the long, smoky burnouts and the dry hops and stuff. It was just a different a different age and just a lot of fun, a big show. I mean, it wouldn't be unusual to have a Wednesday night show to have almost as big a crowd as you guys get at one of your NHRA national events. Oh, sure. No, you know, I mean, I've seen the photos 12, in English cars yeah. running or something, you know. One of the so, uh, one of the things um, that Al had mentioned that that you mentioned, I'd like you to, if you can, uh, give a little more background on was the uh, was the Sunday night pasta dinners at uh, at Freddie's house after oh, the Long Island race. Unbelievable! Oh, you know, just a manja, manja. If you know you're full, and they keep putting more food for you. Manja, manja. Wait, you don't like my cooking? You don't like my food? You're insulting me. <laughs> Wow, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's an amazing and, thing to think about because we think, you know, you, you don't think about drag racing today as being the type of thing where guys pack up their stuff on Sunday and end up having pasta dinner at somebody's house, right? Like yeah, you said. everybody. Yeah, tractor trailer. I mean, uh, trucks and trailers all over the streets trying to find parking spots and uh, everybody having fun together, laughing, joking. But, you know, your, your team were two or three people, too. It wasn't, you know, 10 sure. or 12 people. And so, was just, it? Just a different world. 
Yeah, and was it any surprise to you, you know, as as we get about, I don't know, seven or eight years after you had raced with him, after, you know, the, he's he, his name starts showing up in the news somewhat because he became an informant, and, and I think he, in a lot of ways, maybe came around to, to want to atone for some of the stuff he had done in his life. Did any of that surprise you guys when it started to, to surface, or was it kind of like, well, this is maybe what happens when you live that lifestyle? Uh, a little of that, but also a little of a, a lot of uh, a lot of things that came out I didn't believe. Sure. So he he turned state informant. Yeah. I knew Freddie would never turn state informant. You have to shoot the guy first. <laughs> he didn't like the police. He would never tell the police or the FBI anything on anybody. Yeah. So when they tell me he turned that, I, I I can't believe that. And then they said he committed suicide, which I don't believe either. But anyway, yeah. it could have happened. It could have happened. Yeah, and it's and like you said, there is there's a lot of stuff when you read about the guy that you think, man, I don't know if he would ever actually done this, right? Because the rest of his life kind of points to the fact that he probably wouldn't have. <laughs> right, and also, you know, you live by the gun, you die by the gun type of thing. I yeah. mean, it uh, uh, doesn't surprise me. The people in that kind of business end up you the uh, shot early or dead or killed or broken up bad for some reason yeah you know one gang wants to be a little tougher than the next gang or something yeah it doesn't uh typically that's not a movie that ends very happily typically Uh, (laughs) and i i didn't really want to know anything about that business or go be around it because i didn't want to be involved you know 100 percent have somebody say hey you're a friend of his no i don't know (laughs) (laughs) well man i i thank you for taking some time harlan and and you know it's like i said to al segrini it's one thing to you know to read a bunch of stuff about the guy but to actually hear uh you know three people that interacted with him at the racetrack and you especially you drove his race cars uh kind of a unique and interesting thing so i appreciate you taking the time and sharing some of these stories and um i'm i'm very thankful that you emerged unscathed from your relationship (laughs) with broccoli (laughs) freddie all right thank you So now that we have been clearly educated on the fact that Broadway Freddy Denane was not much of a drag racer, we have to change the direction of this story. And from this point forward, if you typically listen to these with uh, like kids, I'm not sure you want to listen to the rest of this with kids. I'm not going to get too graphic, but this is a really, really dark story from this point forward. So uh, that is your warning going ahead. Now, we heard from three guys that knew Broadway Freddy from the drag strip. Now we're going to hear very quickly from a guy who knew Broadway Freddy from his other life. This is Detective Joe Wendling of the NYPD, a man who would ultimately be responsible for taking down not only Broadway Freddy name but the entire DeMeo gang. The DeMeo gang's expertise was mostly in selling stolen vehicles. Freddy DeNome was a fast driver, and the streets of New York were already rampant with car theft. Oh, it was a tremendous epidemic of uh, car crimes in New York. Uh, and there was a tremendous slew of warehouses found with skeletons of cars in it because there were certain parts that nobody could take. And that was the frame because it was numbered in the engine. Freddie Denome. Freddie was a racing car driver and was highly respected as a car thief. He could get away with any kind of uh, a police chase. And Willie could get away with any kind of police chase, ultimately, Freddie, like everybody else in his gang, almost everybody else in his gang, wouldn't get away with his life. We've talked about the car theft. We've talked about all that kind of stuff. And one of the myths I have to dispel in this story is the fact that, you know, a lot of people and and even the guys that we have talked to today 
the timelines are a little bit murky on Freddy's criminal activity. We know for 100% he was a very uh, big car thief during the time he was drag racing. We know for 100% he was definitely dealing drugs during the time he was drag racing. We know he was hijacking trucks for Roy DeMeo. We know he was doing all kinds of really bad stuff. We don't necessarily know if he was murdering people at the time he was drag racing because really the timeline starts, and by his own admission, the timeline of the real bad stuff, if you want to call it the exponentially bad stuff, really picks up right around that 1977-78 time frame when Harlan Thompson was driving his funny car. In 78, uh, Broadway stops drag racing and concentrates fully on his mafia duties because his buddy Roy DeMeo, who has been working his way up through the ranks, earning people millions of dollars in the mafia because of all of his illegal activity, hires Freddy as his personal chauffeur. So not only are you the guy driving uh, Roy DeMeo around, it means you're also doing a lot of the same stuff that Roy DeMeo does. So was Freddy involved in, in physical crime before the 1978 time frame? Probably, but this is where the story ramps up to its kind of height of badness. A couple of names we have to introduce here. Roy DeMeo's gang, the DeMeo crew, if you will, a guy named Chris Rosenberg, Joe and Pat Patrick Testa, they called them the Gemini Twins for reasons I'll explain momentarily, Freddie Denome, Anthony Center, and Joe Guglielmo, Guglielmo, I should say, were also part of this group. And other people floated in and out. A guy named Vito Arena was one. And you could do business with these guys uh, or you didn't. Uh, if you chose not to, you would end up like a guy named Andre Katz, who in 1974 refused to join the group, join the car theft ring, and Katz was summarily murdered and then dismembered and then sent off into nowheresville. No one ever saw the guy again. Uh, his body was never found, but that 1974 murder would set into a chain of events that ultimately would lead to the end of Freddy's life as well as the end of the gang. So in 1978, Freddie's making incredible amounts of money uh, doing illegal things, working directly with Roy DeMeo, uh, spending every day with DeMeo. And by 1979, we start to see the wheels slowly begin to come off the wagon for Roy DeMeo and his gang. The thing that made DeMeo's gang different was that they would take murder contracts from any uh, mafia organization in the city. If they, if you wanted someone gone, they were aligned with the Gambino family. But if you wanted someone gone, you could get a hold of Roy DeMeo, and he would make them go away. To the order of, they estimate between 100 and 200 people uh, were disposed of, um, killed by Roy DeMeo and his crew. Roy DeMeo was um, a guy who was he could be in many ways like the you know worst serial killer in American history now I guess thankfully most of the people that he dealt with in this manner were fellow criminals that were doing fellow criminal things but it is still very very frightening to think about now I mentioned the guys the Testa brothers were called the Gemini twins and the reason is because the DeMeo crew including Freddy most of the action as far as the disposing of people happened at a place called the Gemini Lounge which was a little um neighborhood bar in Brooklyn, New York. Very unassuming place. It was the type of place that a guy on his way home from work would stop and grab a beer. It was not a, a club. It was not a disco. It was just a neighborhood gin mill watering hole type place. Behind the Gemini Lounge was an apartment. 
and what these guys would do is they would lure their victims by whatever means necessary into the Gemini Lounge, get them into the apartment, and then make them disappear. You can read about this in, the, in a book called Murder Machine, which tells the, the story in an incredible amount of depth. But long story short, um, the, the way that these guys made people disappear, and I mean disappear, when I say they were gone, they found a way, and this is the 1970s and early 80s, so it wasn't like they had the advanced police technology we have today, but they would um, dispose of the person by bringing them to the Fountain Avenue dump in uh, New York, or they would take them to um, a wrecking yard where there was a car crusher, and they would be placed inside there and then shipped off into Nowheresville to be recycled into tin cans or whatnot. But during this time in history, these guys, beyond a shadow of a doubt, perfected the, the ability of making people disappear and then having no trace of them ever to be found again. Chris Rosenberg, a guy that I mentioned, is Roy DeMeo's right-hand man. Basically, they have a father-son style relationship. Rosenberg's a guy that, um, Jewish kid, uh, grew up, always wanted to be in the mob, finds Roy DeMeo. Uh, Rosenberg's kind of a kid slinging drugs or whatnot. DeMeo brings him in. They have this familial-style relationship. And to the point where Chris Rosenberg would assume Roy DeMeo's last name when he was doing stuff. He would check into hotels and call himself Chris DeMeo. He would, on occasion, while doing criminal things, would call himself Chris DeMeo because Roy DeMeo's name carried so much weight in this underworld. Everybody feared him and respected him. DeMeo wanted to people think that he was, uh, you know, closer than he possibly was. Long story short, Chris DeMeo gets into a drug deal type of situation here. He's going to receive a lot of cocaine from some people that he believes are Cubans. And ultimately, Chris DeMeo decides to double-cross these people, and he ends up himself um, killing five of them. They end up being aligned with the Colombian drug cartels, the Colombian mafia, and during this exchange, he uses the name, over the course of these dealings, I should say, he uses the name Chris DeMeo. This becomes a problem. So the Cubans, or I should say the Colombians, understand that this guy is aligned with Roy DeMeo, which means he is aligned with the Gambino family, which now Paul Castellano, who runs the Gambino family, says to Roy DeMeo, we have a big problem here because they're going to start sending people up uh, hit squads to take us out unless you take out Chris Rosenberg. Understandably, DeMeo, a guy who seemingly has no conscience, who has killed over 100 people at this point in his life, um, finally like, has a moment of conscience. He, he doesn't want to do this to Rosenberg. Ultimately, he has to. And DeMeo becomes very, very paranoid. So what ends up happening here with the, when the acceleration of badness happens, the... Chris Rosenberg is uh, dispatched, if you will. But before Chris Rosenberg is taken out by Roy DeMeo, DeMeo is at his house on Long Island, New York, and he is paranoid. He spends his day staring out the windows waiting for these Colombians to show up and, and try to take him out. And an 18-year-old kid named Dominic Ragucci pulls up in front of his house. This kid is a vacuum cleaner salesman going door-to-door, neighborhood to neighborhood, trying to sell vacuum cleaners. He's 18 years old. As Raguchi approaches the house of Roy DeMeo, DeMeo says, here they are. The Colombians are here to get me. And he grabs himself, some weapons, another couple of guys, 
and they chase Raguchi back to his car, and rather than just let him speed away, they then proceed to chase him across Long Island. And then in the middle of broad daylight, they finally have shot his car up enough that the 18-year-old kid has to stop, and Dominic Raguchi loses his, Raguchi, I should say, loses his life in broad daylight during, uh, it's not even a shootout, it's a one-way shootout. I mean, it's a three or four guys just unloading pistols into his car and weapons into his car. And there was witnesses all over the place. People described what they saw, who did it, how the people that were shooting looked professional. And this is a big, big problem. So we have this cascade effect now where Rosenberg causes the problem with these Colombians. Now we have the Raguchi problem. We have Rosenberg taken out and the wheels completely fall off the wagon. And the group, this DeMeo gang that was unstoppable, that was so calculating and so... Uh, scarily good at their chosen trade, which was, again, dismembering people and sending them down the road to never be seen again, starts to turn on each other. So by 1980, five more people involved, either either in the gang or are kind of quote-unquote friends of the gang, are killed because... DeMeo begins to become very paranoid that these people are going to snitch on them, that they're going to turn informant to the state. Um, even in, by 1980, even though with all this going on, DeMeo is still making 2 to $3 million a year in 1980 money, loan sharking and car thieving and now selling drugs. And as we mentioned, these murders now, we're talking in the dozens from 1978 through 1980, Freddie DeName is part of virtually all of them. And Roy DeMeo has taught DeName how to do this in terms of the disassembly of people. DeMeo, as I mentioned before as a kid, was a butcher's apprentice, as were the Gemini twins, Joey Testa and Patrick Testa. So they passed along the art, if you will, of this job to our dyslexic, fourth grade dropout friend that we base this episode around Broadway Freddy. So by 1980, it's not just the Gemini lounge where the bad stuff's taking place. Now it's at Freddy's shop. They start using Freddy DeName's workshop, his automobile repair shop as one of their locations where they're luring victims in to, to take care of business. Finally, January 10th, 1983, the man himself, Roy DeMeo, is killed. And he has made so many people in the upper echelons of the mafia so much money. That's why they kind of kept him around. But he really kind of came off the rails. The pressure got too great. All this stuff was kind of kind of coming around, coming down around him. He didn't know who to trust. He couldn't trust anyone. People said that he was often uh, using a lot of the drugs he was supposed to be selling in terms of cocaine and other things. So the Gambino family, really from the top, Paul Castellano, ordered that DeMeo be killed. And this was a guy who was so scary. People were The guys in the mob were so afraid of him, no one would take the contract to take out Roy DeMeo. And when we look at the history of the mafia, the history of the mob, when we, we talk about stories like this, guys will normally kind of jump at it because if you can take out one of these big guys, it means you're going to get elevated up into the program and you're going to have more power, status, and money. But DeMeo was so whacked out, so crazy, and surrounded by so many guys that were also loyal to him and seemed to be crazy that nobody wanted to jump at it. Supposedly, John Gotti said no way. Supposedly, they went to John Gotti, who would end up being 
probably the last big mafia figure in America. And he said, not a chance because the guy's crazy. Won't do it. So DeMeo is taken out. He is taken out most likely by a guy named Nino Gaggi who had worked very closely with him. And he and Nino Gaggi had been business partners for a very long time, friends. Gaggi was supposedly involved in the Dominic Rigucci disaster in Long Island. And Gaggi was a very high-ranking member of the Gambino crime family. They were afraid he was going to turn state sevens as well. And basically the end for Roy DeMeo came as it comes for so many in this line of work that he had where they found him stuffed in the trunk of a car, frozen in the middle of winter. Remember, it's January 10th with a chandelier on top of him. Not sure what the significance of the chandelier was, but they placed him in the trunk of the car, which they think he was out there for a week or two, freezing away, and he was stiff as a board when they found him with a chandelier on top of him. What's been going on with our man Broadway at this point? Well, he's still doing his thing. He's got his auto repair business. He's likely dialed back on the car thievery, likely dialed back on some of the other activities as he has watched people around him lose their lives and disappear. But this is not a guy who is equipped to go fully straight and narrow. So we know he was involved in some stuff between this January time frame in the early 1980s and then until February 4th, 1984. And this was a seminal moment, a bad seminal moment in Broadway Freddy's life because his brother Richie was killed by Joey and Anthony Center, the Gemini twins. Why was he killed? For the same reason the rest of these guys were. They're pretty sure Richie Denone is going to go to the cops and talk about the murder of a guy named Joe Scorney, who Richie and a guy named Vito Arena had killed. Scorney was one of the uh, unlucky people that decided not to join or go into business with Roy DeMeo several years beforehand. And so in order to advance their status in the group, advance their status in the mafia to show their allegiance to Roy DeMeo, Richie Denome and Vito Arena went and took out Joe Scorney, who was an auto shop guy, owned an auto repair business. And they put him in a 55-gallon drum, filled it with concrete, put it in the back of a truck, and then rolled it into the river. Once Richie is taken out, when his brother is killed, that's it for Broadway in terms of his want and or need to be anybody's friend anymore in the world of the mafia. So what does he decide to do? Broadway Freddy decides to turn state's evidence. And the final chapter in Broadway Freddy's life may not be redemption, but boy, he sure got back at all the guys that screwed him over. There is a certain irony in the fact that Broadway Freddy's drag racing career brought him no headlines, and most of Broadway Freddy's mafia career brought him no headlines, but the end of it brought him all the headlines. After Freddie Denome, Freddie Denome, you get to pick at this point, decides to go state's evidence, he goes all in. He and a guy named Vito Arena uh, that I mentioned earlier, Arena followed basically the same path that Freddie that Freddie did in terms of getting involved with DeMeo as a car thief and then uh, ending up as uh, a murderer, a racketeer, uh, someone involved in drugs, the whole nine yards. So both Broadway Freddie and Vito Arena turned state evidence And they are probably the two guys most responsible for demolishing the Gambino crime family 
or at least the structure of the Gambino crime family as it stood in the late 70s to the early 80s. So I'm going to read from you to you from a New York Times story, January 14th, 1986. Remember, Richie Genome is killed in uh, 1984. Broadway goes state's evidence shortly after, and the feds build their case, and he is one of their star witnesses. And I quote from the story written by Ronald Smothers as saying, a prosecution witness yesterday implicated eight of the nine defendants charged with running a car theft ring operated by the Gambino crime family and described the role of two New York City police officers aiding the ring. The witness, Frederick DeNome, was the second admitted accomplice of the ring to testify in the trial, which began its 13th week yesterday in federal court in Manhattan. The questioning of Mr. Denome by Walter Mack, an assistant U.S. state's attorney who is the chief prosecutor in the case, seemed designed to corroborate the details given by the earlier witness, Vito Arena, of the ring's operations and hierarchy, as well as its members' purported role in multiple murders. The nine men on trial are said to be associates of Paul Castellano, the reputed boss of the Gambino crime family who was gunned down in, on a mid-Manhattan street on December 16th and who had been a defendant in the trial. The short, wiry, sandy-haired witness speaking in a clip style identified five of the nine defendants yesterday as being directly involved in the theft of cars and their alteration for sale to wholesale dealers in the Middle East. He named three other defendants as having roles in two grisly murders committed to protect the ring. He also named two New York City police officers who he said helped the ring come up with phony vehicle identification numbers. From 1978 to 1980, Mr. Denome said a patrolman, John Doherty, and a detective, Paul Calabro, both members of the police department's auto crime unit in Queens, provided the ring with a book listing of unused VIN numbers. He said that they also ran bogus VIN numbers through a police computer to make sure the numbers were not of cars already reported stolen. Did Calabro or Doherty receive money, Mr. Mack said? Yes, sometimes 2000 or 3000 a week, depending on how many cars were involved, Mr. Denome said. The witness had pleaded guilty. Mr. Denome, under an agreement with the United States Attorney's Office, has pled guilty to federal car theft charges, participation in seven murders, hijacking, loan sharking, drug charges, and prostitution-related activities. He is awaiting sentencing and faces up to 25 years in prison. End quote from the story. Two to $3,000 a week during the time this car theft ring was going on, the equivalent of, a, if we're talking three grand, it's the equivalent of $9,400 today. Big money. Big, big money. And again, an indication that the mafia had their hooks into everybody in New York City in the 1970s. This story was published on January 14th, 1986. On February 19th, 1986, another story appears in the New York Times. This one written again by Ronald Smothers. The headline, a protected witness in the Gambino trial is termed a suicide. This is the end of Broadway Freddie DeName's story. Quote, a key witness in the federal trial in Manhattan of reputed members of the Gambino crime family has been found dead in San Antonio, and the medical examiner there said yesterday that the man had hanged himself. The witness, 45-year-old Frederick DeNome, was found dead last Wednesday. He had been relocated to Texas and given a new name as part of the federal witness protection program. Mr. DeNome, an admitted car thief, was awaiting sentencing for his role in seven murders. He testified last month in the trial of eight men accused of operating an international car theft ring that started in Mr. Denome's garage and committing five murders in which he admitted playing a role. 
Information from Mr. Denome was expected to figure in at least four future trials of reported Gambino family members on charges of extortion, loan, charge, loan sharking, drug trafficking, murder conspiracy, and racketeering. And San Antonio Sheriff Harlan Copeland said he had never suspected foul play in Mr. Denome's death, but he said he had kept an invest, his investigation open for nearly a week while he sought the arrest of three men believed to have stolen the victim's money and jewelry after finding him dead in the two-bedroom home he had rented. The sheriff said that the men had told him that Mr. Denome had left a suicide note addressed to his wife and children, but investigators have yet to find it. Mr. Denome testified last month that he could neither read nor write. He said Mr. Denome, who had been found hanged from the canopy of a waterbed, had been living in the city just since June under the name Fred Marino. Mr. Denome's testimony last month gave some clues to his value as a witness. For one thing, he was a survivor in a ring the prosecutors maintained murdered at least eight of its own members, including Mr. Denome's brother Richard. William Dempsey, a spokesman for the United States Marshal Service, which runs the 15-year-old Witness Protection Program, said that none of its witnesses who abided by its rules had been murdered. He added, however, that there had been 15 suicides among the more than 4,800 persons who took part in the program. Jury deliberations continued for the fifth day yesterday in the trial in which Mr. Denome had been a witness. End quote. End of story. End of Broadway Freddie Denome. So what is the moral of all this? Well, clearly, the moral of all this is don't go in the mafia and start killing people because you're not going to have a happy end to your life. But the other moral of this story is Broadway Freddy's story can be found in many sections and many parts and pieces on the Internet, but this is the first place that it's all been put together in one spot. Yes, you can read the book Murder Machine, and I do recommend you read it. It is a fantastic read. It is a gory read. It is a shocking read, but it tells the whole story of Roy DeMeo's gang. It tells inner workings, and it tells the operation of how all that stuff went down, and it is fascinating. It is one of the best mafia books probably ever written. You can read different excerpts about Broadway Freddy's drag racing life. You can read his Wikipedia page, but at the end of the day, this is the most comprehensive telling of his story, and I know it took us a little while to get it all in, but if you've listened to this whole thing, you understand why. So many elements, so much craziness between figuring out what was going on in New York City in the 70s to the actual insanity of the crime levels that were happening in that city to then understanding what Broadway's role was in drag racing, which, well, wasn't much of one, and then understanding what his role was in the mafia, which was far more significant than he ever had at the drag strip. Testimonials from guys who raced with him, guys who raced around him, guys who hung out with him at the racetrack, Amazing stuff. The life story of Broadway Freddie Dename is both sad, it is angering, it is gross, it is intriguing. It's also a study in the fact that a lot of people in this world do live multiple lives. Broadway Freddie had one persona, one personality, one mentality at the drag strip, and away from it, completely another. Amazing stuff. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast, a dark story, a venture into the 1970s of New York, a venture into the mafia, and a venture into drag racing history. We'll be back next time with another Dorkamotive Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening as we tell the stories that make the automotive world go round. <laughs>